Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are now in Lesson 27 in the Torah study series, The Gospel According to Moses in the Book of Exodus. And this time we're going to focus in on Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13, going into the first verse of chapter 10. Now we're ready to study the last triad of the plagues. The last triad is plague 7, 8, and 9. Now, plague 10 is special. It stands on, on its own, and we'll talk about that later. But the first nine plagues are in a pattern of threes, three triads. So you have the first triad is plague 1, 2, and 3. The second triad, 4, 5, and 6. And the last one, 7, 8, and 9. And though the first of each triad, the first plague of each one, Aaron and Moses are to meet Pharaoh in the morning. Now, in a previous lesson, it's possible that indeed this is probably related to the festival of the god Min. And it's related to the harvest, because this is the harvest time. The barley will be harvested soon, and also the wheat in about seven or eight weeks after this. It's the time of the Passover. Now the second plague of each triad, Aaron and Moses meet Pharaoh and it's assumed in the palace. Though the Torah is silent on that, it's an assumption and it makes sense. Now the third plague of each triad, I mean they're not meeting Pharaoh, I mean there's literally no warning with regards to that third plague of each triad. So again, let's join Moses and Aaron. Here we are in the first plague of the last triad. So let's take a look at the verses in Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13 through 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. So there it is again. Here we are in the first plague of the triad. What does God say? Meet Pharaoh in the morning. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But, indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will send a very heavy hail. Such has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, and he's talking to Pharaoh now. He's saying to Pharaoh, You, Pharaoh, go. Bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is not found in the field that is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. Then one among the servants of Pharaoh, who feared the word of the Lord, made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and livestock in the field. Now what's interesting here is the Lord, Yahweh, is telling Pharaoh to go out and seemingly to warn the people. Not Moses, not Aaron, 
But Pharaoh, it kind of is a demonstration of God's compassion also. He's saying, listen, I don't want to destroy you. I'm just, I'm, I'm warning you. I don't want to kill you. God even said, I could send the pestilence on you and wipe you out, but that's not what I'm doing here. But God is warning them. And in verse 14, it says that all Egypt will know me. Now, we talked about this in earlier lessons. God wants to have them experiential, experientially know him. That is what yada means. It's not just know, but know by experience. Know by a relationship with the Lord God Most High. Daily life. So this is interesting. This is a first. By Pharaoh's own mouth and actions, he's to take the warning of the Lord and proclaim it among his people. And Pharaoh, it seems that the Torah implies that he did. Because in verses 20 to 21, some servants feared the word of God, the word of Yahweh. It says Lord in capital letters, so that means that that word is a cover word for the actual Hebrew name of God, which is the yud Hey vav Hey, the four letters of the Tetragrammaton. But in verse 21, there are those who paid no regard to it, and they left their livestock in the fields. So it makes sense. Pharaoh probably just reported what M Moses told him. He probably, he probably implied a take-it-or-leave-it attitude among his people. Remember, Pharaoh, he was the one who was to prevent chaos. Isfit in the ancient Egyptian language. And he walks with Ma'at, the goddess of order and truth and, and, and peace. But now, it's Pharaoh's responsibility. He, he's to blame. It, but he really didn't convince his people. Now, remember in Plague 5, the disease was on all the livestock. But here, we have hail is to call come and kill any living thing in the field. So where did these animals come from? If we actually go back to lesson 5. Now it's very interesting. The Torah is silent on this, but if we take a look at, at Exodus chapter 9, verse 3, and this is when the Egyptian cattle die, it said, Behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field. So the implication is that those cows, bulls, sheep, etc., horses that are sheltered, there's not going to be a problem. They're going to be spared. But this makes sense because we're reading the very words of God. And in the very words of God, God is being precise. Only the livestock that are in the field. The implication is those that are sheltered are going to be okay. Now, there's a very interesting verse that we need to take a look at. The phrase is, Ko amar Yahweh Elohe ha'evrim. Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. This phrase is huge. 
we read it before in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. And you're going to read it in a number of places. The Lord said it again. Thus says the Lord. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. But then Pharaoh says it. Thus says Pharaoh. The Lord repeats it in Exodus 7, 17, 8, verse 1, 8, verse 20, 9, verse 1, and now here in 9, verse 13. This is an interesting phrase, and we need to take a look at the Bible in its historical context. Dr. John Kareed, in his book, Against the Gods, the subtitle is The Polemic Theology of the Old Testament, Dr. Kareed says this with regards to the phrase, thus says, thus says Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. Dr. Kareed says, an additional clear example of a parallel usage of idiomatic expressions appears in Exodus chapter 5. In that chapter, both Yahweh and Pharaoh give mandates introduced by the idiom, thus says. So in Exodus 5.1, it's thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, and in Exodus 5.10, it's thus says Pharaoh. The Egyptians were well aware of the use of that expression to preface the very commands of a deity. Their own texts, such as the Book of the Dead, frequently introduce the will of the gods with the words, thus says. So, for example, in the 175th chapter of the Book of Dead, it concludes the speech of the God by saying, Thus says Atum. The ironic use of this idiom by the biblical writer in Exodus 5, and now we read it here in Exodus chapter 9, verse 13, sets the stage for the ensuing confrontation between the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh, and the God of the Hebrews. This parallel is a conscious criticism of Pharaonic sovereignty. Only Yahweh is God, and only his word truly and always comes to pass. So God inspires Moses to use this phrase. Moses knows this phrase. He was brought up for 40 years in Egypt. He probably knows more about the Egyptian culture than he does his own Hebrew culture. The Egyptians used it, and when one of their gods spoke, like Pharaoh, it always started, thus says Atum, thus says Pharaoh, thus says Ma'at. But we shouldn't be surprised. God told us in Exodus 12, verse 12, that he was going to come against all the gods of Egypt. It only makes sense then that God is using what they understood, the Hebrews and also the Egyptians, so they would clearly understand what God is doing. Again, one of the purposes of this study, not only in the book of Genesis, but also here in the book of Exodus, is what did those Hebrews, who are about to go into the Holy Land, the Promised Land, with Joshua, Moses is dead, and they hear the Torah for the first time, the first five books of the Bible. What did it mean to them? Because it was written to them. And God, this, this is seen over and over and over again, especially with the use of this polemic, this polemic against Egypt. Now, we don't get it. 
We didn't live in 1446 BC. Besides, few, very few, teach the Bible in its historical context. You will probably never hear about polemic theology on Sundays. And here, Dr. Creed suggests in his book, Against the Gods, or Dennis Prager, he implies this in his rational Bible, the Exodus, that to understand Torah, we must study Egypt. To understand the Torah, to understand the entire Tanakh, we need to study the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the New Testament in its historical context. So for Moses and Aaron and the Hebrews, they all knew this idea in Egypt. They knew more about Egypt and the Egyptian culture than they knew about their Hebrew culture. There's no rabbis, there's no synagogues, there's no written Bible. God used what they were familiar with. And so we read, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. Yes, God is coming against the gods of Egypt. He's coming against also the concept of a man making himself out to be God, Pharaoh. This is a motif from Genesis to Revelation. This is huge. Remember Adam and Eve when they were tempted by the serpent? What did the serpent say to Chava, Eve? You will be like God. Or you will be like God's. Man is God. We can make up our own rules of what's right and wrong. It's like in our environment today, in our society today, there are a great number, great percentage in the United States that the right to an abortion is good and abortion is good according to a woman's decision yeah that's living by man who thinks he's God and man God's instruction man God's Torah because that's what Torah means instruction turning from the Lord turning from Yahweh's instruction turning from the Lord's Torah the Lord's teaching now we see this motif again and again let's take a look at Psalm 2 and verses 1, 2, and 3. How blessed is the man who does not... Oh, Psalm 2. Sorry, I was going to read... That was just Psalm 1. Psalm 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So here, I mean, what's David writing? That the nations of the earth are turning away from God, making up their own rules of what's right and wrong. Remember, what about Babel? You think it's the Tower of Babel, but if you read the Torah very carefully, it's the Tower and the City of Babel. That's what they were building. Not just a tower, but a tower and a city. That's key. It's not just about a tower. It's about the tower and the city. We think about the flood. And now here's Egypt. The Exodus, Pharaoh, man says he's God. The Egyptian Torah, the instruction in the Egyptian religion, man must stop chaos. 
Man must stop Isfit. Man! He has to stop evil, disorder, injustice to maintain good, to maintain order and justice. So what's evil? What's good? It's only that which is perceived by man. It's only that which is perceived in his own imagination. You can consider the prophecy against the king of Babylon. This is in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. A lot of people say, if you read in the King James, it talks about the, um, the light of the morning or the morning star, and you'll see Lucifer in there. That is actually a mistranslation because Lucifer is a borrowed word from the Latin. Jerome was actually translating the Hebrew Bible into Latin, and Lucifer is a Latin word, and even Jerome, when he translated it, does not, he said it's not the name of the devil. He never intended that. That is com a complete misunderstanding from the mid Middle Ages of the church all the way to today. Matter of fact, I've got an article for you. I've got a link at the website. If you go to the website, www.lightofmenorah.org, and you look for this session, session 27, and underneath there I always have an, a short introduction, sometimes not so short, but I do have a link to two articles that talk about the fact of how Lucifer is a complete mistranslation and how wrong the church was and actually using the Latin word. It's just a borrowed Latin word, which means the star of the morning. That's all it means. And even Jerome, St. Jerome, never intended it to be the name of the devil. But anyway, this is all about what does the Bible say? If you look at this very clearly, in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, this is about the king of Babylon. Take a look at verse 4 in Isaiah 14. He made himself out to be God. But in verse 22, God says he is going to come against the king of Babylon. Then, prior to Jesus' day, around 170 B.C., we remember the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. And in Hanukkah, the Jewish people would remember the evil, very evil king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And Epiphanes comes from the Greek word that basically means God manifest. Antiochus is basically saying, I'm God. <laughs> One could imagine Antiochus basically saying, Thus says Antiochus. Thus says Antiochus when he outlawed Torah observance. He ordered the Jews to be executed horribly for having a Torah scroll or attending the synagogue or torturing women horribly for circumcising their baby sons. Now what's interesting, when you go to John chapter 10, starting in verse 22, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's there for the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. And that feast, Hanukkah, is a remembrance of those bad, awful, terrible days when Antiochus IV Epiphanes 
was murdering and slaughtering Jewish people for their observance of Torah. Hanukkah is a remembrance of that evil king, Antiochus IV, who declared himself God. But Jesus, if you read John chapter 10 very carefully, starting in verse 22, they want to stone Jesus, and they tell him why. <laughs> what did I do? They said, because you made yourself out to be God. He does this on Hanukkah. Jews remember Antiochus IV on Hanukkah. This is no accident. This is not random. Again, we have this motif is, is, is consistent. God coming against the concept of man declaring themselves as God. What about Rome? The emperor Augustus or Tiberius, they did, they're declared gods. Let's go to Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. You'll remember this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now what's very fascinating here is if you actually go into the Greek, and actually put the Bible in its historical context to go back to the Hebrew. It's not a poll tax, like going across a bridge and you had to pay a, a toll. Okay, That's not it. This is tribute. This is like coming to Rome and saying, this is my tribute. This is to recognize that you're above me and I bow to your authority. It wasn't a tax. It was, a, it, it was that tribute. And I thank Ray Vanderland for that. And his teaching me, and also many of us, when we are not only in Israel, but also in Turkey as well. Verse 18, But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tribute. Okay, poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and ascription is this? Now notice, Jesus asked for two things. Whose picture is on here, likeness, and what does the inscription say? Now they said to him, well, it's Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now notice they said, yeah, the likeness is Caesar's, but they did not say what the inscription said. Then rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and rend to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. Now what you need to do, again, put the Bible in its historical context. You need to get a denarius that would have been available in 30 AD. Because on that coin was a picture of Tiberius, Caesar. But the inscription said, this is a worshipful son of a worshipful God. Tiberius is the son of God. So when we read that, what is Jesus really saying? Caesar's not God. Because to give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what are Caesar's. We can't dismiss this. God is trying to show us something that we've missed. This is declared in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Shema Israel. 
Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And your Bible probably translated here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And the church says, see, the Lord is one, and there are three in one, and they use that as a basis for uh, saying, see, there's the Trinity even in the Torah. But the word there is echad, an undivisible or, or indivisible unity. It can't be divided. So it's actually a mistake to actually use this verse to have in any way find a basis for the Trinity. Yahweh is, basically it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is the only one. He's the unique one. He's the one and only. But let's take it to the end of days. Let's talk about a prediction that Paul made in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is the Antichrist. This is the beast of Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. He makes himself out to be God. You guys just started it back in Genesis. We've come full circle. The devil tempted Adam and Eve. You can be like God. And now when you read in Revelation 13, the beast, the Antichrist, was given his power by the devil. Now this is just like the gods of Egypt. What does God say? What does God say for Moses to tell his people? We're going to go to Deuteronomy, chapter 32, 15 through 17. But Yesharun grew fat and kicked. Now, Yesharun is a Hebrew word, another substitute word for Israel. So we could say, but Israel grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. This is an implication of the fact that the Hebrews had assimilated into the Egyptian culture. This happened years after Jacob died and after they lived under Joseph and probably Joseph was dead by then and they really got into the good life of Egypt. And you can actually go back in previous lessons. I can't remember whether it's going to be lesson one, two, or three, but there we talk about the fact and we go into the fact that the Bible really shows us or indicates that indeed the Hebrews turned from God and assimilated into the Egyptian culture. Verse 15 seems to verify that. Verse 16, they made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations that provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. What does God call the gods of Egypt? Demons. Genesis to Revelation, 
This is a motif that we cannot escape. And it becomes clear as we study the Bible in its historical context. I think Paul gets it when he taught us. And this is in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now I want you to see this. I think what Paul is teaching is about two sources of wickedness against the rulers and against the powers against the world forces of darkness world forces here but also against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places the the sources of evil here and also the sources of evil that come in a spiritual way from heavenly places therefore take up the full armor of god so that you may be able to stand to resist in the evil day having done everything to stand So let's continue with regards to the first plague of this last triad. So picking up where we left off in verse 22, Now the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast, and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire, ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been seen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. And I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, and the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and uh, the spilt were not ruined, for they ripened late. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform the signs of mine among them. 
Once again, we turn to Dr. John Kareed, the brilliant Egyptologist, the brilliant archaeologist, a brilliant Christian theologian. And like I said, he is just a highly credible scholar. He's the lead scholar, lead editor, with the latest archaeological study Bible that came out from Crossway Publishing, plus his commentary on the Torah and his books Against the Gods, talking about the polemic theology in Egypt. He's just, it's just brilliant. But anyway, related to what we just read, we're going to go to see his comments about verse 24. And verse 24, we had read, let me go back and read that. So there was hail and, and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as not been seen in the land, all the land of Egypt, since it became a nation. So this is an amazing statement. And Dr. Kareed gives us some perspective with regards to that statement that nothing has ever been seen like this. So quoting from Dr. Kareed, the intensity of the storm is further heightened by the statement that such a hailstorm had never been seen in Egypt since its inception. That announcement, and this is pointed out by a, a Jewish Torah scholar by the name of Kosuto, and he has pointed out this reflects a common Egyptian expression of the time. Pharaohs, such as Thutmosis III, would assert that they had done something greater than all the things that were in the country since it was founded. Yahweh employs the same idiom to demonstrate his power over any natural phenomenon that had, had, that had ever been experienced in the land of Egypt. It is critical to remember that the Egyptians believed their gods to be per personified in the elements of nature. The catastrophe of the hail was therefore a mockery of the Egyptian heavenly deities, including Nut, the female representative of the sky, and the personification of the vault of heaven, and Shu, the supporter of the heavens, who holds up the sky, and Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. Again, we see another polemic. It's something they understood. Not only the Egyptians, so that they might come to know, have Yada in the only God over the heavens and the earth, but also for the Hebrews as well. Once again, God is mocking the gods of Egypt. And then you read in verses 25, 31, 32, man, beast, and all the plants of the trees have been affected. The Lord Yahweh is destroying the economy of Egypt. They're the breadbasket of the world. We remember the story of Joseph. And in fact, the whole world came to Egypt for wheat, for grain, for bread. And this is, was true all the way even to the Roman Empire. Hundreds of barges per day carrying hundreds of bushels of wheat traveled from Alexandria, Egypt to Italy every day. I believe it's 150 estimated barges per day to feed Rome. Where did they get their wheat? From Egypt, their major export. And God again gives us in precise details 
verses 31 and 32, that the barley was ready to harvest, but it was destroyed. But not the wheat, because the wheat still had a number of months yet to go. God is telling us what time it is. It's the time of Passover. It's March or April. The harvest of the grain in Egypt is at the same time as it is in Israel, and barley is the first grain that comes up, which is at Passover. Verse 26, God protects his elect, his bakarim, his chosen ones. And in Lesson 26, we went into this in great deal detail. We took it all the way to the end times about how God protects his chosen ones, his elect. And then something explosive happens Starting in verse 27 through 33, Pharaoh, the supreme man-god of Egypt, says he sinned? Where before, Pharaoh says to Moses, I don't know your God. But now, Pharaoh not only says that he sinned, he calls the God of Moses by his name, Yahweh. This is extraordinary. And again, we're going to take a look at some of the comments in the Torah commentary by Dr. Kareed. The king of Egypt calls for the Hebrew prophets and then makes a grand confession. I have sinned this time. Pharaoh's self-condemnation is not very convincing because he's not acknowledging his earlier previous sins and arrogance. He is only speaking of the present situation. In support of this point is his use of this time or now, which mirrors God's use of the same expression in verse 14. It would be a mistake to conclude that Pharaoh has seen the light and that he exhibits a repentant heart. He may be weakening, but he still plays the snake, lying and manipulating and twisting. Even so, it is striking that Pharaoh would make any confession at all. The Egyptians believed in the purity of their sovereign. Individuals who approached Pharaoh were commanded to prostrate themselves, smelling the earth, crawling on the ground, while invoking this perfect God and exalting his beauty. God is attacking this notion of Pharaoh's character, being pure and untainted. There is only one God who is good and perfect. But, could it be, and I believe Dr. Creed is hinting at this, that Pharaoh, over all of these plagues, sees how to beat Yahweh every time. Now remember, Pharaoh has to maintain ma'at. He has to maintain order. He has to maintain peace and harmony. He has to maintain conditions in the economy and the social fabric of Egypt so that things work well together. Now, so far, every time Pharaoh asks Moses to go to the Lord to stop the plague, and in every instance, the plague was stopped. It's almost like Pharaoh has figured it out. He says, I know how I have power over the God of the Hebrews, over Yahweh. It could be 
that Pharaoh sees this as a capitulation by the God of Moses. Pharaoh might see this as how his gods are defeating the God of the Hebrews. It seems to fit. Pharaoh asks Moses to go to his God to stop the plagues. Moses does. The plagues stop. Every instance. Pharaoh wins. He maintained Ma'at. He manipulated the God of the Hebrews. And in every case, Pharaoh doesn't harden his heart. In every case, where you say, or you read in your Bible where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, it doesn't say that. The Hebrew word there is chazach, which means to give courage to. He's strengthening his courage. He thinks he's winning. He's not hardening his heart. He's building it up. He's getting more courage. Now Moses seems to see through this. We take a look at verse 30 and basically <laughs> Moses is saying, I know you and your servants, you do not yet fear the Lord. It's almost like Moses sees this, this ploy. He sees how Pharaoh thinks he has the power over the Lord God. Let's go back now to verse 34, 35 and into chapter 10, verse 1. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again, hardened his heart and his servants. In other words, he strengthened his heart with courage. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then we read this. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Whoa! First time. And the heart of his servants, and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs, signs of mine, signs of mine among them. First, Pharaoh made his heart heavy, heavy towards the God of Moses and the God of the Hebrews and the Hebrews. His heart was light to Maat. He was living righteously. He was showing how he could defeat the God of the Hebrews. He always came to Moses, always did what he, we might think is the right thing, and then he encouraged his heart because he saw that this was his scheme, this was a plot. Pharaoh manipulated Moses' as God. Pharaoh increased his courage, but now we read in the original text, now there, in the original text, there's no verse numbers. There's no separation between chapter 9 and chapter 10. It goes right in, so right from verse 35, you start reading verse 10, 1. Because it says, Then the Lord uh, to, uh, said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Now the word there is the exact reverse of verse 34. In verse 34, Pharaoh hardened his heart and that of his servants. So now in 10.1, it's the exact reverse. God also does, makes Pharaoh's heart and his servants' hearts heavy. So now we have this very interesting perspective that indeed if we go back into the Egyptian culture, 
that in order for Pharaoh to be righteous, he needs to have a heart that's lighter than a feather, the feather that Ma'at wore, the goddess who is the goddess of truth and harmony and peace and good life. And he needs to make, he, Pharaoh, needs to maintain Ma'at. So his heart needs to be lighter than Ma'at's feather to show that he is living righteously before Ma'at and maintaining Ma'at. So if he makes his heart heavy towards the Hebrews, towards the God of the Hebrews and Moses, and makes it light to Ma'at, it's saying that I am righteous. I am righteous to my gods. I am righteous to Ma'at. But God makes his heart heavy also, but it's a reverse heaviness. Little does Pharaoh know that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Moses, the God of the Hebrews, has done something to Pharaoh's heart. He didn't take his free will away, but he did something to his mind. Remember, heart means mind in the Middle East. He did something to his mind so that indeed Pharaoh would turn against Ma'at. He did something to Pharaoh so that indeed as time passes he was going to have the ability to turn against his own gods. Now we're going to see that God did not take away Pharaoh's free will. We'll see that in the next plague. God did something to Pharaoh's heart and his servants. So again, I remind you to take a look at that video series from Light of Menorah, His Highness's Heavy Heart. I've linked you to that in the description at the website for this podcast. You'll have that link to go to the videos. And again, you guys, if you're not looking at those videos, His Highness's Heavy Heart, both part one and part two, you're missing a tremendous study into the ideas of hardening Pharaoh's heart and what's happening as we progress through the plagues, getting to plague number 10 and also the major confrontation at the Red Sea. So I've given you the link to those and I highly recommend that you study those. They're about 30 minutes long each one, but they are very, very critical. And they're all based on Rabbi Sephorno from the 15th century when he took a look at the Hebrew and understood that the God of the Bible does not take away free will. In other words, Rabbi Sephorno and the other rabbis are not Calvinists. They recognize that their is free will and God has given man free will but then we start studying Dr. John Kareed as an Egyptologist as a Bible historian as an archaeologist and he presents the Egyptian culture and who Pharaoh is and what it means to have a heavy heart or a light heart in other words a mind in the Egyptian culture. This explains so much and it is so critically important as we continue to go on. So from the Egyptian point of view, God made Pharaoh's heart, his mind, 
ready to give in. It would need to be something attacking Pharaoh directly. God did something so that Pharaoh would turn against Ma'at, turn against all the gods of Egypt. Now, you have to remember his whole psyche, his whole purpose in life is to serve Ma'at and maintain Ma'at. But God did something in his worldview, in his belief system. To realizing that, indeed, he cannot maintain Ma'at. His heart is going to be heavier than Ma'at's feather. God did something so that Pharaoh would be able to obey the Lord, Yahweh, and free all Israel. In other words, Pharaoh would make the decision with a weakened rationale of his religion. Now this is for us as well. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. But then when we go to chapter 10, verse 2, it says that, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I perform my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. You may know. It's for us, too, that as we take a look at this, as we put the Bible in its historical perspective, what is God teaching us? He's teaching us all of this that we may know Him because God doesn't change. He's the same then and He's the same today. So indeed, he's doing this that the world may know Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. He's doing this that the world may know Yahweh. That Yahweh is our God. The Yahweh and Yahweh, one and only, the only. So, until we get to lesson 28, I wish you shalom. Shalom.